It's Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a limited-run podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, Booker Prize-winning author Bernadine Evaristo on the magic of writing and the emergence of characters in her text. Then, Washington Post journalist Paul Farhi on the role reporters are playing and how White House journalists are coping with President Trump's disinformation and distortions. I'm Stephen Fee. All that coming up on The Pen Pod. British writer Bernadine Evaristo gained even more international acclaim last fall when she was awarded the Booker Prize for her work, Girl, Woman, Other. It's her eighth book, and the text flows more like poetry than prose. She herself has called it fusion fiction. And Bernadine Evaristo joins me now. Hi, Bernie. Hi. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Good to talk to you. Yeah. So where are you right now during this uh, sort of lockdown moment? Yeah, I'm in my study in West London um, in the UK. And are you able to work right now? Are you do you have writing projects that you're able to focus on or are you finding it impossible? Yeah, I've always got uh, lots and lots of things on the go. Um, So it's interesting because actually I have an 86 year old mother and I have to go and um, look after her twice a week. So I, so I don't really have a sort of full, um, you know, a full week to sort of get into things. But um, it's it's surreal. And I'm sure this is what everybody's saying. It's so surreal to sort of, um, you know, I travel across London to see her. She, I live in West London. She lives in South East London. And it's so surreal to know almost exactly how long it's going to take me to get there. Because anybody who knows London knows that London's an incredibly busy city. And you just mm-hmm. sit in traffic for ages. But, but <laughs> the streets are almost empty. And, wow. uh, you know, the, the journey, I hardly stop. Uh, so, so it's weird. And then, and also the sort of experience of being at home and knowing that everything's cancelled pretty much, you know, I should be touring now. I should be touring for the next few months. It's all cancelled and we're all in the same boat, so to speak. Um, and I'm just getting through my admin at the moment, in fact. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Good time to focus on the, on the paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about your your book and and your book tour in just a moment. Um, but I, I want to talk I want to talk briefly about what you said to Vanity Fair about about the text about Girl, Woman, Other. Um, you said you wanted to create as many Black British female protagonists as you could get away with. Um, tell me more about how you approached writing this book. Uh, yes, so so that was the plan, um, and I ended up with twelve, uh, primarily Black British women. Um, I I began with one character who is a uh, um, a woman of Nigerian parentage, born and raised in London, who is a banker, and um, she comes from a working class family. She goes to Oxford, um, obviously becomes hugely successful in her career, and and then through her, her mother emerged through her childhood narrative. And then I, I moved on to her mother and also gave her mother her own section, because just to backtrack a bit, each character has their own chapter in the book. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not a book of short stories. It's a novel. It's a cohesive novel, but they all have their own sections and then they're all kind of interconnected. I began with Carol and then Bumi emerged. And also through Carol, her childhood friend Latisha emerged. And then uh, through Carol, Shirley emerges, who is her, one of her school teachers. And so it kind of grew organically until at the end I had all these 12 figures and um, was able to tell all kinds of stories about their lives. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, that sort of connectedness and that that organic growth of, of the development of these characters, uh, you know, is that is that routine for your process? Is that is that how these characters tend to emerge in your work or is this unique? Uh, I think each book is unique because I'm also quite experimental um, in terms of how I write. So each book has its own form. Um, some books I begin with a stronger sense of where it's going than others. Some books I begin and I kind of know what the ending will be, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. With this book, it was incredibly organic. And I would say that is probably true to my style. I start writing and then the story emerges through the act of writing. The characters start to come alive. And in a sense, those characters start to speak to me and tell me what they're going to do and where they're going to go. Um, and that, for me, is the magic of writing, in fact. Um, I'm not I'm not a plot-driven writer, even though if you were to look at Girl, Woman, Other, you would say it's full of multiple plots. But actually, mm-hmm. it's a character-driven novel. And that's what I'm really interested in. So it's really about how do I bring these characters alive whichever book I'm writing and um how do I make it interesting for the reader and do you feel that I mean a lot of people say that they're turning to literature right now that they're looking to books they're looking to uh, particularly um uh, uh, literature and fiction to sort of have a degree of connectedness that they've they're losing right now or they feel they, they don't have do you do you do you feel the same way uh, I think that's definitely what fiction does, you know, for sure, and poetry and and books, basically, you know, books are very, you know, good book. A good book is incredibly engrossing, and you can lose yourself in it and be transported to somewhere else, and also just connect at a deeper level with humanity, um, especially, I would say, perhaps with fiction. Uh, so I do think that it's it's interesting that we're in this moment where people are turning to books, and I find that very hopeful. For myself, I. Um, I haven't really, because I, because my my sort of experience of being sort of semi in semi isolation is is um, truncated. I haven't really been able to dig deep to mm. get into some reading yet, but I hope to in the weeks to come. And it's certainly that's I I find reading almost like meditation. You know, for many years um, when the you know I got when I got my first Apple computer actually you know which was so huge 24 inch screen and (laughs) you know so sexy and glorious and colors and everything and great internet connection and the first thing I did every morning was to go on there and you know scroll scan as we do social media the news and so on and so forth and then um, at some point I realized I'd lost something And actually, when I begin the day reading a book, before I look at the news, before I check my Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or all those things, um, I find it, it sort of settles me. And I find it incredibly peaceful and enriching in a way that nothing else can produce that result, I think, for me. Yeah. Oh, that sounds very good. I mean, you sound like you have a good sort of mental place right now for you for you to be in. Yeah. Um, I I want to ask just to, just to fall just to finalize here. Um, obviously, your book tour had to get curtailed mm. because of all of this. How is this crisis affecting you, um, but also the the bigger industry and writers at large? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, how is it affecting the world? You know, it's so right. It's so uh, unprecedented. Um, I think. Th- th- everybody's suffering everybody Mm -hmm. is suffering apart from perhaps the supermarkets or the toilet paper manufacturers (laughs) um i think the the industry because everything has stopped and the shops have closed um i think you know i just hope that we survive it let's put it that way i'm a very positive thinker so i hope that whatever happens to the publishing industry we survive it and continue 
to thrive, you know, once, um, you know, the coronavirus um, epidemic, uh, pandemic has passed. I think for writers, it's, um, you know, for, especially for writers publishing at the moment, it's very distressing for them because yeah. suddenly all the sort of things that have been at their disposal in order to promote a book have mostly gone. Um, I think, but, but, but as we said, you know, people are reading books and of course we have online retail now in a way that's uh, just incredible. So I think, I hope, I think and hope that people are going to continue to buy books and support writers and the industry that way, but not just to support them. It's not a philanthropic gesture, actually to, to perhaps discover if they've left books behind or rediscover the joy of reading for my own career. You know, I won the book uh, in October, my book, um, Girl Woman Other was published in May last year. So I've had a really good run. Um, mm. I've had the kind of dream run that any writer could ever hope for. So I, I feel very grateful that all of this has happened before uh, everything shut down. Uh, but everything has shut down. You know, I should be touring f f from, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago right through to the middle of next year. And I don't know what's going to happen with all those tours um, but you know, we have the internet, so we can keep in touch with each other in this, in this way. Well, I like your, your optimism. I I'm, I'm with you on the positive thinking. Uh, yeah. I, I think we could all use it. Um, Bernadine Evaristo is author of eight books, including the man Booker winning girl, woman, other. Thank you so, so much. Thank you very much indeed. Covering the media right now means reporting on an industry that's taking a major economic hit while also providing a life or death service to readers. Here to talk about the role of the press amid the crisis, Washington Post reporter Paul Farhi. He covers the news media and he joins me now. Hi, Paul. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing all right. So, Paul, how are you and other Post journalists working remotely right now? And how are you able to report uh, at this moment of social distancing? Yeah, that's the challenge. We're all scattered to the winds. Uh, we went out in mid-March. We've been at home, and most of us are sitting at home, like I am now, trying to report about things going on in the real world. It's a real handicap because, you know, as a reporter, you want to see the things that you are reporting on. At best, right now, we can only hear the things by talking to people over the phone or, you know, maybe on Skype. But they're not, you know, in any position either to show us what's going on. I mean, for example, it's very hard to get into the hospital to see what's going on there. Um, and so anyway, there's enormous challenges uh, in terms of reporting right now. Yeah. I mean, right now, I mean, it just feels like local reporters, especially, but also national reporters, um, are, they're playing this sort of huge role right now as part of this crisis. Um, I, I'm wondering how you see the role that they're playing right now and what kind of stressors they're facing, even beyond just these access issues. Well, I think we are realizing, if we didn't realize it already, how valuable information is. Uh, in a crisis, it always is valuable, accurate, professionally reported, um, verified, all of the journalistic values that reporters bring to the job, how valuable that is right now, because misinformation can literally get you killed and good information can save your life. So 
Uh, now more than ever, it's really, really important to go to trusted sources of information. We can certainly talk about what's trusted and what's not. There's always a debate about that. But nevertheless, professional reporters uh, doing what journalists have always done is really something that is is beyond you know the usual value uh, during this crisis. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you a bit about some of your reporting you've been doing the last few days, um, specifically about the One America News Network, or OAN, and its White House correspondent. Um, she was recently barred from the White House Correspondent Association from uh, the rotation at the at the White House briefings. How, do, how, how, from your reporting, does the association justify locking her out? And how do you think OAN is part of this kind of blurring the line between propaganda and journalism right now? Well, first of all, they didn't lock her out um, or lock OAN out, I should say. Uh, They put OAN, as well as many other news organizations, in a rotation. The rotation came in as a result of social distancing needs within the very cramped and very crowded press room. Um, If you've ever been there, it's basically a closet and you cram at some times in normal times, 100 people into this closet to, be, uh, to attend these press briefings. So you can't do that during this time. Uh, you've got to have some order. You've got to have some um, sequencing of, of people who come in. There's a big demand uh, among news organizations. Fine. So they started out by reducing the, no- the amount of seating from 49 seats to 25 seats. Uh, so OAN was in the rotation. OAN was going to be able to show up once every five days uh, in taking a, 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 being at the briefing. Then that wasn't adequate. They reduced it from 25 down to 14. Uh, OAN, like other news organizations, had to take its place once every 10 days. Apparently that was unacceptable to OAN. They cut a deal with the press secretary, and frankly, they cut a deal with Trump, who loves OAN. They got special dispensation to show up every single day at the press briefing, um, unlike uh, most news organizations. So they are now, their reporter is now there every single day with the blessing of the White House and specifically of Trump, who likes OAN because they report favorably on Trump. I, what does that say about what OAN's role is right now? I mean, if they are, you know, on the one hand, you know, sort of, they, it looks like a, a reporter, acts like a reporter, quacks like a reporter. And yet at the same time, they've reached this deal with the Trump administration. They're sort of being invited there, not even really as a as a member of the press, but as a guest of the president. I mean, what does that do for the credibility of their ability to report? Well, I'll, I'll say this for OAN. Um, much of the time, what they do is headline reporting and reasonably accurate headline reporting like you would see on another pretty much mainstream uh, news network or TV station. Uh, the rest of the time, it delves into a certain kind of um, uh, paranoid, uh, perhaps conspiratorial um, kinds of things that you would raise an eyebrow to, to say the least. Um, so, you know, there's some real questions about their special reports, uh, whereas their day in and day out is often without real challenge or contention. Uh, um the fact that they've got this special deal going with with Trump tells you that he favors them as a reporting about him, that what they do is uh, going to be 
essentially um, in his interest. And that's not a real good look when you are trying to be objective and have some arm's length from the people you cover, especially the president. One of the theories, and this is just a theory, but it makes sense to me, is that Trump likes OAN as a hedge and a wedge against Fox News, which he has lately been very critical of. So in other words, if he keeps favoring OAN, a more or less conservative network, it keeps Fox News, which more or less is a conservative network, at least in its opinions, uh, in line. And that's what he's doing here. He's using them uh, to lever Fox News to get back to what he thinks is more favorable reporting. Uh, if you saw yesterday in his various tweets, he was criticizing Fox News's daytime programming. He was criticizing Chris Wallace. In other words, he was criticizing legitimate news reporting as opposed to the opinions he likes to see. So I think that's the game that's going on here. It isn't so much that he loves OAN, but he can use them to, to work Fox News. Gotcha. Well, so, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of armchair quarterbacking, but, you know, I think you probably have a better vantage than most on how reporters are doing covering these briefings and more broadly, how reporters are doing covering the federal response. What do you think they're doing well? Where do you think they could be doing better? I think reporters are producing at tremendous volume, first of all, a tremendous volume with accurate information. If you go to any local website, you will see a lot of useful information about food banks, about uh, local hospitals, about uh, the local response to, to the pandemic. Um, you know, again, now more than ever, we are a very, very valuable source of accurate information when, uh, again, inaccurate information can be very dangerous. Um, so I, th I think, you know, just the fact that reporters are out there in the field, or at least remotely reporting about what's going on, um, has been very um, useful to people. And people have, readers and viewers have responded. The ratings are way up for, for news. The, the traffic for websites and news websites is way up. Um, people want what we do. Uh, the problem, and this bears a, quite a bit of discussion, the problem is the economic under foundation of news reporting has absolutely been wiped out. Uh, the advertising base of the mainstream media has come to an almost complete stop. And news organizations were in trouble economically, most of them were, before this. Now it's an absolute existential crisis. Yeah. Well, we're hopeful that uh, that perhaps, you know, people will sort of see the value right now and start subscribing and doing the things that they should be doing um, to kind of keep the, the industry moving just because it is playing such a, a life or death role. Um, let me ask, finally, are you are you reading anything right now? Are you able to focus on any new books or podcasts or, or Netflix shows? I, I was uh, I, I you can ask my wife about this, who I'm sheltering <laughs> in place with. I am reading my phone. I'm reading my phone. <laughs> uh, it seems like 24-7, but it's uh, probably I sleep at some point. Um, the, the, the flood of information is enormous, and I want to know it all. And, you know, I have a stack of books by my bedside that I've been meaning to get to that I have not even touched because I'm just so alarmed, fascinated, and disturbed by 
the news and I, I'm trying as hard as I can to keep up with it. And I, I, you know, again, weirdly enough, given the handicaps that we have to face in terms of reporting, the reporting that I see is quite good. I recommend two articles to you among the thousands, it seems like I've read. Uh, the New York Times had a very good TikTok about uh, the Trump administration's response yesterday. This was a story that the Post uh, took a crack at a few days earlier, both of which came to essentially the same conclusion. But I highly recommend both of those to sort of counter the propaganda that's coming out of the White House about how uh, wonderful the response has been. Uh, I think the reporting shows something else. That's great. Well, Paul Farhi covers the news media for The Washington Post and has worked at the paper since 1988. Thanks for being here, Paul. Thanks so much, Stephen. And that's our episode for Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. Join us tomorrow for The Pen Pod. We'll talk to debut novelist Ali Aragi. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Sign up on our website for our daily D.A.R.E. newsletter, where we track major stories about literature, free expression, and the news of the world. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is The Pen Pod. See you tomorrow.